as I was thinking of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus during these wonderful songs and texts. Not sure why it jumped into my mind. Actually, I remember why now. It was the Space VBS. Uh, Many years ago when I was ministering in Boston and Cambridge, uh, particularly at MIT, uh, we had a meeting and I asked uh, Roe Brooks, who was one of the first five staff to join Bill and Bonnette Bright staff training, uh, was in their kitchen in Hollywood uh, to speak at the one women's dorm at MIT. Uh, And that night we met Kyle, a freshman And the Lord opened her eyes to see Jesus, and she told us she had come to MIT to study physics to find God. And he found her. And when she went, graduated, uh, she went to Romania to graduate school and was really an undercover agent for Jesus and took sometimes three or four trains out of the capital city. This was the Ceausescu dictatorship years in Romania. Meeting up with people who also lived in the capital. She wasn't in much danger, but they were. Uh, And out of those train trips, seven small groups started. And out of those small groups came churches. And I was sitting here this morning wondering... How many believers in Romania today are saying with us, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Father, we're always or frequently trying to shut our eyes and shut our ears. We don't want to presume on your grace, but we would ask you this morning to open them again and dig out our ears that we might hear words of life. And in the name of Jesus Christ, we ask it. Amen. Something inside every human being, sometimes we bury it, but it's intrinsic, uh, seems to cry out to say that life must have meaning. It's kind of who we are. Yet we pay thousands of dollars, uh, tens of thousands of dollars to go to school where they teach us many places that there is no meaning of life. And yet inside us, in spite of all of that, Body and soul and molecule cry out, there's got to be. Something in me says that's, that's the way it's made, that what we do matters beyond our death. It's true everywhere, every culture, whatever the religious culture is, and people try to deal with it in different ways. Eastern thought and religions tend to answer this sense by saying that we're part of the life spirit, the life force of the universe. Uh, and we merge into it at death. And that sort of connects, but one of the problems is, uh, in that view, there's no you there in what you merge into. You just merge away. So there's no real meaning 
for you. And somehow it doesn't seem uh, to satisfy. Western religious thinking, Greek and Roman, tends to focus, uh, I think Plato, on the primacy of the spirit over the flesh. The body really doesn't count as much as the spirit, and two views came out of that. One is uh, eat, drink, and be merry, because what you do with the body doesn't matter, because then you die. And the other was the more aesthetic view that uh, we need to have some discipline so we can deal with life in the spirit. But there's an incompleteness in some spiritual form, somehow we carry on. Uh, so as we look this morning uh, under the title of resurrection, what is it and to what end I want briefly to try to clear up the confusion that floats around out there, and maybe some of it in here, sometimes even in me, by looking at the resurrection of Jesus and his body. Whether you see yourself uh, as skeptical, take the Bible with some seriousness, but wonder how seriously you should take it, or whether you, like we at UPC, are trying to take it as seriously as it, we have learned, deserves. I want you to understand uh, from what we say this morning that the Bible, more than we know in our age, has shaped so much of a lot of people of every background's thinking. I or others would be glad at another time uh, to tell you why we think it's eminently rational to take the Bible very, very seriously. But this morning we're just looking at the resurrection according to Jewish and especially Christian thought. And Jewish and Christian thought shares common roots, but they differ over one major issue regarding resurrection. And that is the Messiah. Jesus and what he and his resurrection mean. So what is the resurrection according to the Bible and to what end? What he say to you, first of all, under the first heading, uh, it's not reincarnation nor the raising uh, of the widow's sons in uh, the Old Testament uh, in Zarephath and the New Testament in Nain, nor even is it the raising of Jesus' friend Lazarus. Those things in some ways point towards the resurrection of Jesus, but they are not what the Bible calls resurrection. The Bible's thought goes much further and deeper. Sometimes folks confuse the accounts of the raising of the dead with these sons of the widows at Zarephath and at Nain, but these are merely raisings back to the same kind of life that they had. That is not New Testament resurrection. Because when you are raised back to the same kind of life you had, guess what happens next? You die again. And so while it's a pointer to the power of the prophets, as in Elijah, and to the power and authority and identity of Jesus, as we think of Lazarus raising, there's far more to it. And because we often fail to understand how big and significant for living now and after death true resurrection is, not everyone in every circumstance longs for a resurrection. That's why some try to make 
light of it, and sometimes life is tough. I heard about a man in simpler days uh, who died. There was a wake held in his house. Uh, The next morning, the pallbearers came and took the casket out the front door to head towards the little village cemetery. Uh, And as they got to the front gate on the downslope, the corner of the casket caught on the gatepost, and the casket slipped away and slid down the slope and began to roll, and the lid came off, and the husband got out. So life went on in the village and in that family until a few years later the husband died again. A wake was held in his living room. The pallbearers the next morning took the casket out the front door and the widow was heard to cry out, watch out for that gate post. (laughs) Not everybody wants a resurrection in every circumstance. Two other biblical events point a little more closely towards the ends which Jesus' resurrection moves us. It can only take a moment, but I want you to think back to Genesis chapter 5. It's helpful to remember that in the garden, God came and went, and when He was in the garden with Adam and Eve, He walked with them. A few chapters later, when uh, after Cain murdered his brother and violence began to fill the earth and they were cast from the garden. In Genesis 5, in the genealogy, we read that Enoch walked with God. A certain line through Seth began not to move towards violence, but began to walk with God again. And the text has a phrase that in the Hebrew is so short that uh, it's hard to know what to do with it. It's so different than anything else that is there. It says, Enoch walked with God, and then he was not. God took him. Now, in the context, when everybody else came to a certain age and they died, the rabbis understood that God took him meant something a whole lot different than he died. When we come to the second one, In 2 Kings 2, with the prophet Elijah, who at the end of his days, God took him to himself. The chariots of fire, more than one. Why was there more than one? To show God's glory. I mean, Elijah only needed to ride in one. But God took Elijah. And that was significant and was a pointer. If you've read the New Testament carefully, uh, you know that... uh, When Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am, one of the answers that people gave was, well, maybe he's Elijah who's come back. And if you've ever been, and I hope you have the privilege, uh, one of the most wonderful evenings I've ever spent was in a Jewish home in South Boston uh, in a Passover Seder going through the Haggadah, the telling of the story of the Exodus and the hope of God. And there's always a chair for Elijah. And some thought that Jesus was Elijah. But even Enoch and Elijah aren't the resurrection of Jesus. There's something going on there, and God's doing something special, but it's not the radical thing of the greater reality. Secondly, that Jesus' resurrection is unique with inescapable consequences. 
In the remainder of time we've got this morning, I want uh, to introduce you to two significant aspects of Jesus' resurrection. In this second point, I want us to see that historically, the bodily resurrection of Jesus is hard to get away from. If you want to be honest and have integrity, you can't do what our culture tries to do with the resurrection of Jesus and say, oh, people were just not very smart back in those days. Uh, The history that we know and know more of every century simply will not let you do that. And if it's true, it affects most everything about how we see the world and our lives. And in the third point, I want to look at a few highlights of what Paul says about the implications of Jesus' bodily resurrection for how we live today. Often we think about the resurrection just in terms of the future, but if you read the letters of the apostles, you will understand that resurrection begins now, if we're born again in Christ. And it comes to its fruition later. But the Scripture has a lot to say about how it ought to affect us now. The apostle is clear, Paul in Corinthians and other Scriptures, that if the resurrection is not true, Christians are most to be pitied. But if you've been taught to avoid the Christian faith, I want to warn you, uh, that doesn't just affect Christians if Jesus is not resurrected. Because you're back to there being no ultimate meaning in life. You're back to coming from nothing and turning into nothing. And there's no ultimate meaning in between except that which we pretend. The leap of faith that most people take is not the Christian one. I can only touch on this, pray for restraint in my brain and my mouth. The fruit of the Enlightenment, which brought so many good things, was essentially dishonest. Trying to be logical and rational without having anything anything ultimate to stand on. And, And I could talk for hours, literally probably without notes, giving you examples of how that's played out in different academic disciplines and how it's caused trouble and how we're dishonest with things. I'll just give you one example. Peter Berger, probably the greatest sociologist of the 20th century, studied him when I was at Northwestern in the 60s, uh, is as far as I know to this day the only sociologist to recant of his decades-long statement that education was going to do away with spirituality and secularization would remove it ultimately from our cultures. In 1997, he said that's absolutely wrong. And in the years since, every major study, and we have data now uh, through world surveys that is so different, uh, that the world is becoming more religious, not necessarily Christian or Jewish, but, but more religious. Iceland has been pointed out as a secular nation, but they don't ask about all the spiritualities and things that people believe and do that are religious. They just want to know if they attend a church or a synagogue or a temple, a Hindu temple or something. So the scholarship is skewed because it doesn't want to look at that. It wants to believe its own predictions because there's a threat of running away from God and running away from the church that exists historically. Now, I understand that. I want to run away from the church a lot of times. 
I mean, I honestly think sometimes God led me to be a pastor because it's been a lot harder to leave. And I have to read the Scripture all the time, and it keeps slapping down my stupid ideas. But there were things in the church that rightly the scholars in the Middle Ages wanted to run away from. But there was a lot of what they were doing that was trying to find a respectable way. And they brought us so many wonderful ideas. I mean, it's happened in science. I mean, science is incredibly wonderful. I spent six and a half years on the campus at MIT doing ministry. I love the things that I learned from science. But so much of what we call science and get stirred up as science is not science. It's philosophy that draws conclusions that the scientific part admits the professors at MIT, yeah, we can't prove that. That has nothing to do with what we can observe in the laboratory and put together. It's a worldview that's imposed. Probably a good word for it is scientism. And please don't hear me in any way saying I'm down on science. I want more science. It was Christians who were the first great scientists and mathematicians and physicists because they believed there was a real world out there to study and that we could learn things from it. But one of the fruits uh, of that philosophizing that came into the religious academies and into popular thought was that the resurrection of Jesus was for believers to try to defend, but unbelievers didn't need to do anything about it. They could just ignore it. That is the most intellectually foolish thing that one could do. And in the last 20 years, some of the most amazing books have been published that go back into how Jesus was worshipped through the sources that we have, and there's a, or a lot that are lost that we may yet discover, that prove that Jesus was worshipped as divine by the early church so early that the idea that the church thought it up later, any reasonable scholar has to just throw it away. And that there was in the New Testament and in the period, I mean, we have it in the letters of Paul and others just 20, 30 years afterwards, a very clear understanding of what the church understood about Jesus' resurrection. So clear that what was called informally the rule of faith in the early church into the second century was so consistent that scholars who were honest now have to say, there wasn't some vague kind of oral culture that the New Testament came out of. There was a body of understanding that is why later on when the creeds at Nicaea and Chalcedon were put together, the Chalcedonian Creed, were all based on what was already there in the first and the second century. Doesn't make it true, but it means historically there's just incredible reason for believing what the church has believed is true. And frankly, and this is all I've got time for, is to say this, that the very fact that the church existed and grew so fast and drew in people from every ethnicity and people group in the ancient world demands that there was something that really happened. Otherwise, it could have never been that consistent. And if you study the logic of what they believed, it all flowed out of the fact that they believed the apostles, and as Paul says, the 500 witnesses he preached on 1 Corinthians 15 uh, this morning at the early service. Uh, it's the only really rational answer for why this thing happened that has had such an influence on the world. We have such a propensity, I've mentioned to it 
it to you before for chronological snobbery. We think what is new is better and that we're so much wiser. And therefore, it must have just been a myth, right? I mean, you can just write it off. I want to say to you, nonsense. One of the reasons is that Jesus' resurrection was so radically different from anyone's thinking at the time, and therefore not to be accepted without evidence. The Greco-Roman world, as we said, believed that the spirit world was the world for any kind of spiritual resurrection, and if there was some kind of an afterlife, it was purely spiritual, and we want to get rid of this creaking body as it ages anyway. And yet what Paul proclaimed, what Peter proclaimed, what the church proclaimed, what I'm proclaiming to you is a bodily resurrection. And that's why the New Testament talks about Jesus being able to be touched. His body was new and different. It could do things that it couldn't do before, but they watched him eat the fish with them that they had caught in the Galilees. It was tangible. It was real. It wasn't like the other resurrections or raisings as we have talked about them. The Jews were different because of their love for the Creator who made all things good. Therefore, our physical bodies, while tainted with sin, are good. And by the time of Jesus, the Pharisees, the Bible-oriented scholars and rabbis, all believed in the resurrection. But the Jewish belief in the resurrection was that the righteous Jews would all be raised at once when Messiah came. And to say the least, they were not ready for their Messiah to be one who was raised all by himself. And that's why they didn't want to believe the gospel. Because while it was rooted in Jewishness, it was something entirely different. It divided divided the resurrection, as we have said, into an already and not yet. It's radically different than anything expected among his fellow Jews. And it's the only reasonable explanation for the early church. There is no other source, by the way, for, than Jesus for affirming universal human dignity and rights. The best of the scholars, the best of the agnostic or atheist philosophers who know history and know philosophy know the idea of the absolute value of every human life from the womb to the deathbed only comes from Jesus. If you want sources, ask me. I'll give them to you. It comes from nowhere else. And as we move away from it, as we deny it, we get what's going on in Ukraine. We get what's going on in China with authoritarian and totalitarian governments saying, we decide who's valuable. They're the ones who agree with us. The ones who bow to us. And if not, If they won't, they're not worth living. Thirdly, what about now? If we believe in the resurrection, how does this new identity of believing in resurrection, Jesus, and that we can have it with Him if we find our life in Him, has us walking with God now and it fits our future? I've got to move quickly. Slowly changing from glory to glory, we practice resurrection. Let me just walk you through Uh, The other book than 1 Corinthians that says the most about the resurrection, though it's everywhere in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are transformed into the same image 
from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Jesus is raised by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. It's through Christ and His resurrection that the Spirit of God, the third person of the triune God, does His work. 1 Corinthians 15, 45, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a life, a living being. The last Adam, Christ, became a life-giving spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom without the resurrection of Jesus. We're in bondage to sin and hope and death and, and a hopeless effort regarding trying to please God or fix ourselves. And the beauty of this is, verse 18, Moses climbed Mount Sinai in the wilderness in the Exodus. And when he met with God, his face glowed from the glory of God, and he put on a veil. And underneath the veil, eventually, the New Testament tells us, as he was away from God's presence, the glory faded. So he, took, he kept the veil on. But with Jesus... The glory never fades. In fact, it goes the other way. The more time we spend with Jesus, like the apostles, they knew they'd been with Jesus. They were unlearned men, but how do they know these things? How were they so wise? How were they so loving? How were they so powerful? But 1 Corinthians 3 says we're transformed from glory to glory, none of it from ourselves, but it makes our face shine in Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 5 through 14. I'm going to read it quickly. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Those who believe in the resurrection of Jesus become servants who love their neighbors and care for them. The resurrection is good for your neighbors. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be, may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke, we also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. I love the phrase, uh, I don't know if Eugene Peterson created it, but of practicing resurrection. We have the beginning of it. We will have the fullness of it when Christ comes back for us. Romans 8, it's in one of the study questions, when we receive the fullness of our adoption, our new bodies. But in between, we practice resurrection. How? By doing what we've just read. And if you've been here for the first Peter study the last few months, Peter's saying, practice resurrection. Give reason for the hope that is within you. Even those that are out to hurt you, be gentle with them. Respect them because they're made in the image of God. Nobody but Jesus teaches people to do that with their enemies. All we have to do is look around the world and see what leaders teach their people to do with their enemies. You ought to hope the resurrection is true if you don't believe it yet. Because it will make a whole lot better world. 
2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21, and then a few closing comments. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard Him thus no longer. Why? Because He's resurrected. He's the firstborn of the firstfruits of the resurrection, and His resurrection is different than ours, though ours will be sort of like His. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us, the church, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Jews had hoped that the righteous Jews would be raised, not just Messiah, but God in Jesus the Messiah is reminding the Jewish people and all peoples that there is none righteous except God the Son. And we can be made righteous by receiving what God the Son gave us. And then all who claim that righteousness will be raised. Ultimate forgiveness and acceptance, an ultimate reality. Too many people have, distorted, have a distorted view of resurrection uh, that's really about what theologians call the intermediate state. And all that means is there's a time between when you die and when Jesus comes back. And so many of our hymns and songs, uh, Stephen, write some new ones or get people to. It's beginning to happen but too many of them are about heaven as the intermediate state with the angels. Uh, wish I had time to tell you more of the story, but Mark Twain, I love Mark Twain, wrote a short story that most have never heard of called Captain Stormfield's Visit to Heaven. And Captain Stormfield goes to heaven, but in what I've been saying, he's really seeing the intermediate state. And, and he goes in there and there are all these harps and trumpets lying all over the clouds with nobody doing anything with them. And he asks, what happened? He says, well, they get tired of them after a while. <laughs> because that's not heaven. Heaven is a new heaven and a new earth. Read the last chapters of Isaiah. Read the last two chapters of the book of Revelation. And the beauty and the glory and the physicality of 12 trees that are along the sides of the river that bear fruit every month something new, the fullness, the cornucopia, the shalom of the peace of God. We delight in it, and we live it out in a way that tries to show our neighbors that even when we're hurting, even when we're dying, there's life. Mary Nell and I uh, loved a sister when I pastored in Tampa in the 90 named Pat Townsell. Uh, she came... Uh, to service one morning and Monday morning after she called me on the phone and she says, can I come and see you? I said, sure. Came in Tuesday morning and uh, she said, you read a passage from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament, and then you preached in your sermon from another passage. Is that a fluke or does that happen every week? <laughs> and I said, pretty much every week. Some weeks we just have two passages. 
And she said, well, I've been in a church the last 14 years, and it used to read the Scripture in the service, but they've stopped. I'm coming to your church. I want to join. What do I need to do? She began to grow in her faith. She'd had her tough, tough life. Can't take the time to tell you about it. We had the Billy Graham crusade before I moved to Tulsa, and she was a part of it. And she was one of many in our church who did follow-up groups, welcoming neighbors and outsiders from the crusade and friends in her neighborhood to come to her house uh, to study the scriptures together. And we left town, thought about her every once in a while. We came back for some vacation in Tampa with some friends, and I found out she was in the cardiac care unit and was dying. Mary now and I went to see her, didn't want to miss her. They let the 10-minute limit in the cardiac care unit go to an hour because they knew she was dying. Brothers and sisters, we laughed. We cried. She talked about the weaknesses of the church that she came to ours in, and then she told me about the weaknesses of the church that she discovered after I left. They were there when I was there. And we laughed some more about human frailty. And we prayed together. And as we were getting ready to depart, she said, oh, by the way, one more thing. You know what's happening in my house tonight? This is like four years after the Billy Graham crusade. She said, the small group of the neighbors and new Christians and others is still meeting at my house tonight. She said, I'm dying in here, but why shouldn't that continue? That's what I'm all about. And she didn't use the word practicing resurrection but that's what she was doing. And that's what we need to do. I close with this and then we will read the Apostles' Creed and you'll know why in just a moment. Uh, When I was involved with crew at Northwestern as an undergrad in Evanston, Chicago, uh, Dave Sunday, our director, uh, brought in a man that I didn't know how gifted he was, George Buttrick. Some of his theology we'd have a few problems with, but some of his preaching we would love. He was close to 80 at the time, and he spoke that night on the resurrection. They were packed into the crew house on Noyes Avenue in Evanston. And I'll never forget how he concluded the thing, saying the resurrection of Jesus is different. It's about the body. And he looked at us, and he held up his hand, and he said, this little finger will be new when I get my resurrection body. And I have never been able to recite the Apostles' Creed the same way ever since. Would you stand and let's say it together. And you'll hear my emphasis. If I haven't been doing it enough other weeks, I almost always do. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. 
From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.